0: Amen, thank you Clifford for praying and uh, it's nice to be back together this morning. Let me add a welcome to the, Simon, uh, to the welcome Simon gave at the beginning and if you have your Bible please do open with me to the book of Revelation uh, chapter 2. I have been excited to get back into Revelation with you. Uh, we started before Christmas with three messages in Revelation chapter 1. Since that was a little while ago, I thought it would be good to begin by recapping a bit of what we have seen thus far. In my introduction to the book, we acknowledged that Revelation is a bit like an impressionistic painting. Up close, when you're looking at the details of the text, the work and the themes can seem a bit blurry and hard to discern meaning in. But when you step back and see the big picture in view, it can help you make sense of the details. So we started um, back in November with a big statement uh, uh, on uh, why Revelation is in our Bibles, just to get it really clear in front of us. And here was the statement that I made uh, explaining why Revelation is in our Bibles. It's in our Bibles to give us a bigger vision of our sovereign God, who reigns over all of history and whose kingdom will never be defeated. What effect is that big statement supposed to have on us? What effect is the book of Revelation to have on us? Well, I think it is this. This vision of Revelation is given to fill us with a sense of confidence, so that we can live faithful and hope-filled lives as followers of Jesus in this fallen world. When we were looking at chapter 1, we saw that it starts with this great vision of our triune God. It's a vision of the sovereign triune God to give us stability as we face all the ups and downs of life. If you look back at chapter one, verse four, we saw a greeting from the Father called the one who was and who is and who is to come, the sovereign one over history. We saw the lion's share of chapter one, a greeting from the Son and the majestic vision of him and the reassurance he gives right at the start Of this book as he places his hand on John and says in verse 17 fear not I'm the first and the last and the living one and we saw a greeting from the Spirit referred to as the sevenfold Spirit representing his power a power and strength that he works in us to help us remain faithful in all the tribulations we experience in this world and we recognize the main lesson of that opening chapter was this, what we need more than anything else to live faithful lives in a difficult world is we need a big vision of our sovereign God, the one who is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. That's why Revelation opens up with this big, majestic vision of the triune God. Something stable under your feet, when everything else in this world can be inherently unstable. And something we recognized as we introduced the book also, is that one way to organize the book is seeing it consisting of seven sections of sevens. We're going to follow this structure loosely as we press on now into the main body of the book. And this morning, we are entering this section of seven direct addresses to local churches. They were actual, historic, local churches in what is today modern Western Western Turkey. We're going to spend the next seven weeks here and... Let me just say a couple of introductory things as we enter this first set of sevens. Just a quick word on structure and purpose. First, these direct addresses to the seven churches all follow a similar structure. You'll get used to it over the next seven weeks. Each letter consists of four main parts. First you see an introduction. It reminds us of the character of the one Jesus who is speaking. Then secondly, you get an assessment of that local church. Sometimes affirmation, commendation for positive things that are going well in the church. Sometimes correction for things Jesus is not pleased with in the local church. And sometimes you get a combination of both. Then thirdly, you get an exhortation to hear pay careful attention to what the Spirit is saying through these words. And then fourthly and finally, in each letter you get a closing, motivating promise. So that's the structure we're going to follow over the next seven weeks as we work through each letter. But second then, it's important to think of the purpose of these letters. Why are they here? What are they for? Well, in each letter, we hear Jesus giving spiritual directions to his church, about the characteristics he wants to see present in his people's lives in local churches. These instructions are not just for them way back then. They are directly relevant to us now because these seven churches represent local churches in every age. The, the number seven in the book of Revelation symbolizes wholeness. And the idea of seven letters, seven addresses to seven churches, it's, the idea is these are for the whole church, all local churches, all down through history until Christ returns. And so at the end of each letter, you get this one repeated phrase that is not altered in any of the letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches. Not church, churches. This is clearly intended not just for Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, but for all churches. So when we read these letters all together, we get a composite picture of the values Jesus wants to see present in every church. And that includes us here in Belfast in this historic moment and this location. We are, I believe, at a key time rediscovering our identity as a city center church in Belfast. We have been through a period of revitalization. And in a sense, as we now stabilize and seek to think about where do we go moving forward now, it's really important that we think about what Jesus wants us to be as a local church. And here, over the next seven weeks, we're going to be hearing Jesus speaking directly through his word, saying, here is what I want to see among you at Great Vic. So be praying inwardly with me that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, this local church, at this moment, because this is the living word And we are to pay attention so that we will discern the Spirit speaking through the words of Christ to us corporately, but to each of us individually. So don't just be sitting there thinking, oh, I hope that person beside me hears this. You be sent, Lord, come and speak by your Spirit to me. Give me open ears to hear what you're saying to me. So the first address that we're looking at this morning You see there in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, it is addressed to the church in Ephesus. It's, as I said, located on the western coast of Turkey today. The church in Ephesus was planted by the Apostle Paul around 52 A.D., He stayed there, we know, from the book of Acts, for about two to three years to see this church rooted and established in good truth, good, true doctrine. We know that when he moved on, he left a couple called Priscilla and Aquila there to help solidify and develop things. In 1 Timothy, we learn that Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus, In some kind of pastoral role, he was to preach, and he was to defend the gospel from false teachers who were coming in and distorting it. Tradition tells us that actually the writer of Revelation, the apostle John himself, had come to reside in the city of Ephesus, and that he had actually become one of the elders of the Ephesian church. Now, why do I tell you all that? Well, simply to say, this church has great pedigree no shortage of good teaching down through the years. At the point when they would have been receiving revelation, the church had been going for about 35 to 40 years. And then one day this address comes to them and is read out in their public gathering. Imagine it. Imagine when they heard to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, so we're gonna work through the text in just the four parts that I said each letter is, uh, consists of. First, we're gonna look at this introduction. The introduction to the letter in verse one is kind of like the headings we use when we're composing an email. First, you get your to. Who's it to? To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, this way of addressing each church reminds each church that they are a physical local gathering, but also are part of a spiritual or heavenly community where there are angels assigned to represent and help them. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 6 years earlier to the Ephesians that though they were meeting in Ephesus, they were also seated with Christ in heavenly places. So this address is to the whole church with its heavenly angelic representatives and local members. That's why you have this angelic element in the introduction. But it is clearly addressed to the whole church. Then you get the from line. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, clearly, from chapter 1, we know this is Jesus. He was the one in chapter 1 who was holding the seven stars and walking among the golden lampstands. We were told that the lampstands and the stars represented local believers in local churches. So we're told right at the beginning of this letter, these are the very words of the chief shepherd of the sheep, the head of the church. These are his words giving spiritual direction to his flock. He is not a distant shepherd, he is in our midst. Well, after that introduction, we get the assessment. And the first thing I want us to notice before we get into the specifics of this assessment of the church in Ephesus is are the, the two words that begin verse 2. Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus could be summarized with these two words, I know. In fact, these two words, I know, From Jesus appear in each of the seven letters. Chapter 2, verse 9 in the letter to Smyrna I know your tribulation. 2.13 to Pergamum I know where you dwell. 2.19 to Thyatira I know. 3.1 to Sardis I know. 3.8 to Philadelphia I know. 315 to Laodicea, I know. This is what he says to us this morning, to each of us individually I know. You may have walked in here this morning with great burdens that no one else knows about. Jesus knows. You may be here carrying secret worries that not even your spouse knows about. Jesus knows. You may be working really hard and feeling underappreciated and unnoticed by people. Jesus says, I know. He knows the truth about our lives And he lays that sovereign hand of reassurance on our shoulders, and he says to us, Fear not. He also knows the things in us that are not good and that displease him, as we'll see later in this letter. He also knows if our hearts do not belong to him, and he comes to call us to himself. After noticing those two words, I know, Jesus. Or it's important that we recognize that Jesus speaks of four things here that he knows about this church in Ephesus and that he knows about us here this morning. Three of the things he mentions that he knows about are commendations, things that he wants to praise the church in Ephesus for. One of them is a challenging correction that he has to make for the good of the church. So let's think of these four things that Jesus knows about the church in Ephesus and knows all about us. Number one, he says, I know how hard you're working for the gospel where I have placed you. Verse two, I know your works and your toil. This would have been an encouragement to the Ephesians and I think this can be a real encouragement to us. Jesus sees our hard work for the gospel here in the city of Belfast. We're working hard for the gospel here. This morning we have those that have sacrificed being fed this morning through the word so that they can go and teach our children and care for the little ones in the crash. Working hard for the good of the church, for the good of the, the parents here who are being served by them this morning. We have a growing children's ministry with lots of volunteers. We've got small groups with people leading them. We've got women's ministry, men's ministry, committees for these. We've got evangelism. Hope Explored's coming up in February, three Thursday nights in a row. We're working hard to sing good songs, to be careful about what we sing. We're working hard to be well fed with the truth of the word. We're working hard to grow in grace, to be in a presence in the city where Christ has placed us. There are many who in this church give up evenings for long planning meetings, office bearers meetings, building development committee meetings, like the one we'll have tomorrow evening. There are lots of people working really hard for the good of this local church, giving sacrificially of their financial resources, their time, and their love. I think we can personalize this. Jesus knows your hard work for the gospel here where he's placed you. Men, as you seek to set a tone of godliness in your home, as you seek to lead your home in a Godward direction, Jesus knows the hard work that's involved with that. Young mums at home, as you seek to provide love and care for little ones, and it's really hard, thankless work in the beginning, Jesus knows that you're trying to be faithful as you disciple and raise your kids in the knowledge of the Lord. Singles, as you work hard to balance the longing for a relationship with the battle to be content, Jesus knows your hard work for, as you fight for contentment and wrestle with some of the inward feelings and struggles. At work, he knows all about your effort to be a faithful witness, even though it's hard, He knows all about your hard work in prayer for other church members and as you practice hospitality. Even if no one else sees and appreciates, Jesus knows your hard work. He's saying to the Ephesians and to us, your hard work for the gospel pleases me. I commend you for this. Keep going. Second, He says, not just I know how hard you're working for the gospel, he says, I know how you are enduring hard things patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not Grown weary. Again, let us hear as the Spirit takes the living word and applies it directly to us this morning. We can receive this as encouragement from the Lord Jesus. As I look out on you all this morning, I know as your pastor, some of you have endured a lot, a lot of hard things, even now. I know some of you are bearing some seriously hard things. You've been bearing up under the weight of it. And you've sought to be faithful. And you've sought to keep trusting in the goodness of God, even in the darkness, when you have not understood what He's doing. You know, I heard it said that one of the hardest things about suffering in this fallen world is that it is not evenly distributed. Some of you have lost loved ones and have gritted your teeth in the darkness as you've patiently endured. Some of you, even now, are in the midst of extremely testing family situations. Will you just feel like everyone's against you. Some of your family situations I know even now are breaking your heart. Some of you have lost little ones through miscarriages. Some of you have not been able to have children. Some of you are battling very real loneliness every day. Some of you are battling ongoing depression and anxiety. Some struggling with their sexuality. Some of you have real fears about the future, and especially the fear for your children's future. And in all of this, you're trying to bear up, Jesus says, for my name's sake. You're trying to bear the suffering without throwing the towel in and saying, well, God is nowhere to be seen. You're trying to be faithful. And down through the years, you've kept trusting. You've kept fighting for joy. Even with the tears, you've said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And here you are today, still trusting. Trusting still hoping in him, trying not to make shipwreck of your faith, Jesus says, I know. I know all about it. I see your faithfulness. And it pleases me. I commend you for this. Yes, we have been sustained by grace alone. But that does not mean we do not need to hear Jesus coming and saying, well done, keep going. There is a day coming, and Jesus says this over and over again in Revelation, there is a day coming when you will feast and weep no more. In Galatians 6, 9, Paul put it like this, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due time, in due time, we will reap if we do not give up. So brothers and sisters, bearing up patiently, hanging in there for the sake of his name, Jesus knows, he cares. That right hand of reassurance is on you saying, fear not, I am with you. I commend you for this. Keep going. Be faithful unto death, he will say to the church at Smyrna. Well, the third thing he says he knows about the church then that is commendable is he says in verse 2, I know you're working hard to preserve true gospel orthodoxy. You're working hard for the gospel where I've placed you. I know you're enduring things patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and now I know you're working hard to preserve true gospel orthodoxy there in Ephesus. Verse 2, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 6, Jesus commends the Ephesians for hearing the work of the Nicolaitans which Jesus says he also hates. That seems to be just a group of false teachers who came with another version of gospel distortion. And don't miss what Jesus says there, which I also hate. There's Jesus' value assessment of false teaching. This church at Ephesus, as I said, was extremely well taught from the first time it was planted until the present moment of receiving this letter of revelation. Jesus commends their efforts to pursue evangelical orthodoxy. The Ephesian church is known to be a church. They care for what they believe. They don't just want to float along with the latest theological trend. They want to be robust, to know what they believe and to defend what they believe they're practicing we could call real doctrinal discernment. And this is really good and really challenging for us today, where doctrinal indifference seems to be the spirit of the age in local churches. Doctrinal indifference is rife among us today. It used to be with end times. People used to sit down for hours and and almost go a bit too far in arguing how Jesus would come again. But now the pendulum has gone way over this way and we don't even know the difference between the amillennial view, the premillennial view and the postmillennial view. We're like, what is that? It does, doctrine does matter. Now what unites us, of course, is the gospel And we want to always emphasize what we are sharing together. But let's love the truth enough to hold doctrinal positions so that we can at least have a bit of fun as we discuss it and work it out and engage in love with one another. Jesus speaks of this group of false teachers. And he says, I hate false teaching. That should be our value assessment of corruptions of the gospel. We want our values to be aligned with Jesus' values. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But Jesus is saying to the church here, your careful doctrinal discernment is good. I commend you for your heart in this. Keep persevering. Keep thinking. Keep working hard at this. But now we've got to move on. Here's the fourth thing Jesus says he knows about the church at Ephesus, but here comes the correction. Something else Jesus knows about the church that is not good. Jesus says, I know that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse four, but this I have against you. I have this against you. Imagine their hearts lurching at that moment. You're sitting there enjoying the commendations of Jesus. I know your works. You're working real hard for the gospel. You're bearing up as you persevere hard things. You're fighting hard to preserve doctrinal purity. But here's something that I have against you. Oh, it reminds me of a time when as a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I got called in to my advisor's office, Dr. Don Carson. And uh, it was a normal assessment. You know, you got called in as a student from your advisor to kind of track with your progress and how you were doing as a student. And I remember Don saying very, very clearly, Stephen, you've hardly put a foot wrong your whole time at Trinity. Uh, I want to commend you for this, and you've done well here. You've done really, really well. And I was sitting there going, oh, wow, Don Carson saying all these great things about me. That's wonderful. And then he said, but there is one thing that I have against you. And I was like... I felt sick in my stomach and I was sitting in my brain going, Oh no, what is it? Did I not give an accurate reading report? Did I not do something? You know, it was just And he said, he actually rebuked me for a time when I was praying in public and he said, any liberal could have prayed the prayer you prayed. And my heart sank and it was really good and really instructive. He said, every time you're praying in public, whether it's Thanksgiving for a meal or it's in front of a thousand people, always pray the gospel. And I'll never forget it. And I'm so thankful that I had an advisor who wasn't afraid to pull me up when he saw something that he saw needed correction and needed maturity in my life. So here, Jesus graciously comes to the Ephesians and pulls them up on something. And if you look over just at chapter 3, verse 19, look at what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, Those whom I love, I reprove. This is loving of Jesus to come to the Ephesians and to correct them. And it's loving for him to come to us and to correct us. Now, if I was in the Ephesian church, I would be sitting there and go, Oh no, what is it that Jesus has against us? And the answer, of course, comes there in verse 4. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does that mean? Well, it seems that the Ephesians had started out early in their journey of their Christian lives with an authentic, vibrant love for Jesus, a love for his word and a love for each other, but somewhere along the way, something changed. Their love got left behind in the busy work of trying to grow and mature the church. Now, did you hear that statement? It's really important. Their love got left behind in the busy work of trying to grow and mature their church. And you can imagine how this might have happened. Some people, perhaps at Ephesus, were bearing the brunt of the hard work to keep the church going, while others were more like passengers. Perhaps some of those working extra hard got a bit judgmental of those that weren't working quite as hard, and they pressed on in their work, but with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. The faithful few. Or maybe a few people got a bit overlooked, and a kind of cynicism started to creep in and a bit of a critical spirit in some people's hearts. Or you could imagine at the church at Ephesus, differences of opinion about the best way forward would creep in, and people would start caring more about their way and being right than about being channels for humility and mercy. Or in their pursuit of doctrinal orthodoxy, perhaps they somehow became full of hard-edged truth, as opposed to being people full of grace. And truth. Jesus says to the people at Ephesus, look, there's a lot of good here. But where's the love? Where's the love? Is he referring here to their love for the Lord or their love for one another? Well, the answer to that has to be both. In 1 John 4.20, John shows us clearly how love for God and love for people merge together. John says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Jesus is commanding the Ephesians for lots of good things, but then he says, look, you've lost something of the freshness of your love for the Lord and your love for each other. How might this be expressed? Well, maybe some bitterness. Bitterness within the heart towards each other, some judgmentalism, some eye-rolling, some gossiping about each other, perhaps some harsh WhatsApp messages moving back and forward, some hard-edged responses to each other. Jesus says, where is the love? It makes me think of the Black-Eyed Pea song. Does anyone remember that one? What was it? Father, Father, help us from above, because people got me questioning, where is the love? But I think we have to ask, might this question, where is the love, be relevant in your life, in my life? This is a warning to those who are maybe getting lots right. There's lots that's good, but perhaps you've become a bit proud about it and have forgotten that Jesus wants to see in your life more than anything else, maturing love. part of that correction, Jesus then proceeds to tell the Ephesians and us, if we are in that place, here's what we have to do to bring things back into order so that Jesus would no longer have this against us. And really now we turn to to some very clear application for how do we respond well to this message. Well, in verse 5, Jesus gives the Ephesians three steps they need to take to put this problem right. Number one, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Jesus is saying, think back on the zeal and love that you had when you were more fresh in your Christian life. You know, I've been doing this this week. When I was I guess it was about 19, and um, in the summers working for Ulster Bank. I used to work uh, nine to five. I'd come home, get a shower, get changed so that it was fresh. I would eat my dinner, and it was a time when just the Lord was at work in such a wonderful way in my own life, and I just just had such a, an appetite for the Lord. And I would go out in Caledon, County Tyrone, to the fields where there was no one around, and I would maybe spend two, three hours just out singing and praising the Lord, and reading the Psalms, and a wee Bible with me, until it got dark. And once my mum had to come looking for me, um, because she was worried about me. And it was just this lovely, simple life. Um, I don't know whether, this, this doesn't sound right. I wasn't married, didn't have children, didn't have any responsibilities. I just went to the bank and worked. I came home, and I loved the Lord, and I used to love singing and praising the Lord, and I just voraciously devoured my Bible, All the time. Did not want to watch TV because I just wanted to read my Bible. And you know, I've been thinking now, I'm a busy pastor. I'm working hard for the Lord. So hard sometimes that I hardly have time to just enjoy Him like I used to. I'm not out in the field singing as much. And as I've reflected on that this week, I've just thought, oh Lord let me never become a professional Christian. Or I'm just a pastor and I do all these things because I'm a pastor. No, I'm first a Christian. And the best thing I can give to any of you is that that I walk closely with the Lord and rediscover what it is to sing in the fields again. So we're to remember, remember back on those carefree times when it wasn't so complicated and when you just delighted in the Lord. Just think back on that. But then secondly, Jesus says, repent. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent, Jesus says. This means stop living like this. This formalism that is disconnected from love. Confess the sin of lovelessness. Turn around and look to go in a better direction. Jesus gives a stern warning, if we do not repent, he will come and remove the Ephesian lampstand from its place, which I think means they will be judged, and the church will go into decline and start to die. It is probably true that one of the things we should look at when we are in a period of steep decline as a church, what is the condition of our love for each other? Repent. Stop living like this as if love doesn't matter. Third thing then, Jesus says, we're to renew our commitment to love. Do the works you did at first. What, do, what would it look like to get back to just simple love for the Lord and love for each other? We can do no better than 1 Corinthians 4, the definition of love. Think, are these things evident in my life? Love is patient and kind But let me just say one wee thing that's very important in our cultural moment. That kind of love clearly does not mean just tolerance and acceptance of any and every view. It's not mushy love that just says, doesn't matter what you think, I love you. We love with the truth. So Jesus says, you Ephesians, hold your convictions. In verse 6, stand against false teaching. But as you stand for the truth, never leave love behind. You're standing for the truth because you believe that following God's truth is how we flourish as humans. So even when people think you're being hard-edged, It's loving when you say, no, this is the biblical definition of marriage. This is a biblical man. This is a biblical woman. We do not accept that that is a spectrum. We do not accept the redefinition of marriage. We will stand and be pro-life. We will not move from this. Because we believe that when we honor God's ways, we flourish. We want you to flourish. And so we're going to stand for the truth. So we love well when we hold the truth in love. But let's not it be said of us as we vehemently and with conviction stand for the truth. Let it not be said you've left love behind. Well then, let's just close this out. Um, You have been very attentive as we've walked through this letter. We finally get... The exhortation and the promise. We'll just collapse these together very quickly as we close. We've had the introduction, that was all the assessment. Now, the exhortation and promise. Verse 7 simply, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear means take it to heart. In the book of Isaiah, God challenged Israel, saying that they were people of heavy ears, dull ears, they weren't listening. This is calling for an appropriate spiritual response to the words of Jesus here as the Spirit makes the word alive to each of us. So ask yourself in closing this question this morning out of this exposition of Revelation 2 from Steve. What has stood out to me? Has the Spirit put his finger on anything in my life that calls for a change? What is the Spirit saying to me through his word this morning? This is the Lord saying, pay attention and don't just be a hearer, be a doer of the word. That might mean over tea this morning. You're just making more of a conscious effort to love well, to genuinely ask, how are you doing, and to encourage one another. Well, then finally, we get the promise given to motivate us with hope, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is Jesus saying the day is coming when all the work, all the patient endurance, all the fighting to proclaim and preserve the gospel, all of it flowing from love, one day we will see all the effort was worth it. You will sit down and you will rest and enjoy the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There are so many references in the Old Testament especially to God bringing people into the land of rest. And there are these lovely pictures where the prophets speak of a man and a woman sitting down under their tree and no one making them afraid. It's a picture of no enemies and absolute security. And Jesus again says, there's a day coming when you will enjoy time at the tree of life in the paradise of God and all the persevering will be worth it. So let's remember, this is how we witness to a world that's looking on. Jesus said by this, by your love, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So great Vic, let's not let it be said of us. As we grow, as we develop, as we rediscover our identity, let's not let it be said of us. Where is the love? Let's pray. Father, take this word and sow it deeply into our hearts and correct us and affirm us and help us to respond in the way that honors you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to sing of those words of John 15, a hymn that speaks of the blessings we receive as we abide in Christ. Let's stand together and sing.